This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which promises to be a rather more normal bit of programming versus uh, <laughs> the extended rant on last week's show. I kind of just thought that was necessary, and I'm, I'm pleased to report that, uh, that Mr. Jim Diagenio, the person who wrote JFK Revisited, listened to the rant and approved of it, and has also agreed to come and talk to us about the making of that documentary and a host of other things, which promises to be, I think, uh, worth our while. We have a lot of our usual type stuff to kick around, but... Um, also, some things that are a bit out of the blue. And what could be more out of the blue than the fact that we had a tsunami warning last week on the Pacific Rim? Evidently, a sizable volcanic eruption in the island nation of Tonga set the waves to uh, flowing all across the Pacific. Sounds to me as though the waves arrived here just about the same time as the high tide. And from what I can gather, the increase in water level was somewhere between, you know, 0.7 to 4 feet. But it looked like it was sort of sloshing back and forth. I don't quite understand uh, how they got all these measurements. There was not a lot of damage done. Uh, A few people got washed off to sea that were sitting out on the rocks. I think in San Gregorio, somebody had to dive in and pull them out. Which is a reminder, dear listener, that if if you were at the beach and, and all of a sudden you notice that the water... It goes way out to sea. This is not the time to go looking for seashells. This is the time to run to high ground. And it's really no joke. Although I do like to note that when I was in Hawaii a few years ago, I bought a poster which I have uh, nailed up next to a cabin, which I do have that is located near the beach. It says on it, Tsunami Evacuation Plan, which consists of, one, grab beer, two, run like hell, and when it comes to other hazards, uh, which I guess you would say are not really weather-related, well, the tsunami's not weather-related, but somebody posted a map of the United States which showed the number of lightning strikes. And I was just stunned to take a look at, like, how many lightning strikes happened down near New Orleans or in southern Texas or, or in Florida, or for reasons I cannot understand, somewhere near St. Louis. I'm assuming there must be an observation bias in the fact that there's all these lightning strikes in St. Louis, but not in Kansas City. What's really amazing about the map is how devoid the west coast of the U.S. is from lightning strikes. Of course, when we do get them, they they sometimes make up for their normal scarcity. Two years ago, I was awakened by flashing lights when I was asleep down at that aforementioned uh, cabin at the beach. Got up to see this incredible train of of lightning strikes working its way up the coast. These wound up igniting wildfires all over California and giving the Bay Area a rather famous apocalyptic red glow for several days, which made the international news. Anyway, earthquakes, tsunamis, bad. Lightning strikes, bad. If I had to choose, I I think I'd take my chances with, uh, with the earthquakes, which I guess is one reason why I live in California and not Louisiana. Although once many years ago, I was driving through Louisiana as a college student, and the radio announced that there were now officially tornado warnings. 
not knowing what to do, I pulled into a gas station and asked the guy working the pump, he just said there's tornado warnings. What are we supposed to do? The guy looked at me and said, what can you do? I thought I'd do a little bit of follow-up here. We were, we were raving on last week's, or actually a couple programs ago, about the fact that economists are unable to figure out how it is on Earth we're going to slow the population growth and save the planet. This, just, this does not compute to them at all. To the economists, continued production of human beings is essential to running an economy that they understand which, frankly, we'd like to give them a boot in the ass. Now, I, I, I guess it would be sacrilegious to suggest that, but I also would like to give a boot in the ass to the Pope. So I will not say that. But, however, I do want to note that Pope Francis is also worried that too many young people are just not reproducing. A few weeks back, the Holy Father complained that there are too many selfish couples in Western nations who, quote, do not have children because they do not want to, or they have just one, or they have two dogs, two cats. What a terrible thing to not have kids because you don't want to. Anyway, I had to laugh about the fact that this apparently raised the ire of animal lovers. This prompted a commentator at NBCNews.com to say, Get used to it, Holy Father. You may be seeing a lot more young couples walking dogs than pushing strollers. And some weeks back, we were making fun of uh, the fact that the medical profession, of which I have been a part for some time, seems to get... I would say not a passing grade when it comes to dealing with healthcare in America. I'm referring in this case to the fact that people in America are too damn fat. And because we're too damn fat, we have all sorts of diseases associated with obesity, which has been a major contributor to our losses during the COVID epidemic. People that had, quote, pre-existing conditions, unquote, which oftentimes were related to uh, excess weight suffered more than they would have been expected to otherwise. Why do you keep looking at me when you say that? <laughs> oh, coincidence, I'd say. But I have to quote a little bit, I think, from a piece written in New Scientist by David Ludwig, who's a researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital. The viewpoint was titled Rethinking Obesity. Ludwig's in his subheadline said, putting on weight is often blamed on overeating. But new evidence is emerging that it is actually the other way around, to quote from the piece. In principle, it sounds simple. Eat less and move more. This dietary advice for tackling obesity has been around for decades. Yet despite all the calorie counting, dieting, and exercising worldwide, obesity rates just keep ticking up. People in the U.S., for example, were heavier in 2021 than they were in 2020. The author suggests one possibility is we haven't tried hard enough. But then he says, perhaps the problem is the focus on calorie balance itself. In a recent paper, he said, my colleagues and I questioned the basic assumption of whether taking in more calories than you burn really is the primary cause of obesity. We argue that the evidence actually points the other way. We're driven to overeat because we're getting fatter. In the author's mind, the key to how this works is hormones, especially insulin, which is a fat storage hormone. Processed, rapidly digestible carbohydrates, foods like sweetened breakfast cereals, potato chips, and sugary beverages, raise our insulin level too high. This causes our fat cells to take in and store too many calories, leaving fewer available for the rest of the body. A few hours after eating a high-carb meal, the number of calories in the bloodstream plummets, so we get hungrier. Anyway, to make a long story short, the authors suggest that the emphasis should be placed on what to eat replacing processed carbs with high-fat foods. Yes, you heard that right, high-fat foods. 
such as nuts, full-fat dairy, olive oil, avocado, and dark chocolate. These lower insulin levels making more calories from the meal available for the rest of the body. Counterintuitively, higher-fat foods may help shed body fat. This is not exactly a revolutionary idea, starting with Mr. Ludwig. But considering what an incredibly crappy job we're doing in America, preventing obesity, I, it, I, I think it definitely needs to get a close look. I'm especially motivated to say that by another article that appeared in The Economist uh, last month, which I found rather stunning. It notes that obese children will soon outnumber the underweight. Piece by Slavia Chankova, healthcare correspondent at The Economist, said... One of the most depressing trends is the rise in childhood obesity, which accelerated in many countries during the pandemic as children sat still at home for longer, often in front of a screen. A global study in 2017 in The Lancet projected that if the trends seen at that time continued by 2022, obesity in children and adolescents aged 5 to 19 would surpass the share who were underweight. And that would be doing that for the first time, and the prediction now seems certain to come true. This is thought to be extra significant because when children become obese with poor eating habits, poor habits of physical activity, these tend to persist through adolescence and into adulthood. And in a final item of follow-up, I would like to note that that guilty verdict in Silicon Valley on Elizabeth Holmes for her outrageous behavior regarding Theranos. That warrants another look. We've commented on this program on many occasions about the sheer outrageousness of the the colossal fraud that was committed by Elizabeth Holmes. Said the New York Times, in Silicon Valley, there's finally a limit to faking it. Her promise was a customized medical tool that could offer real-time analysis from just a single drop of blood. Whenever anyone wanted to know more about how Theranos worked, the company just cried, trade secrets. Said the piece, Holmes's conviction on four fraud charges after a 15-week trial showed conclusively that the real secret was that everything about Theranos was a lie. Writing in Wired, Noam Cohen said the verdict still brings no justice to the patients Theranos misled. Investors got their win in court, but the jury voted not guilty on four counts involving actual patients. In fact, let's go through these. The East Bay Times listed 12 of the, uh, of the charges that Holmes faced in court. Count number one, conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos investors. Guilty. The charged accused Holmes and partner Sonny Bolwani of knowingly and intentionally soliciting payments from investors with false statements about the technology. Also, its business partnerships and its financial model. Then there's the charge on wire fraud in connection with a 2014 investment of $38 million by PFM Health Sciences of San Francisco. The verdict, guilty. The investors complained that they were told that the startup had bought in more than $200 million, mostly from the Department of Defense. They lied to their investors. Then there's the charge of wire fraud in connection with an October 2014 investment of $99, actually $100 million dollars made by a firm associated with the family of former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Findings on that? Guilty! Theranos told investors that the technology was used on military helicopters. And then there's the question of wire fraud in connection with an October 2014 investment of $6 million from a company involving Daniel Mosley, the longtime lawyer for former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. 
Apparently, these in, this investor was told that Theranos had been approved by Pfizer. So let me tell you, you lie to your investors about what your product can do, and boy, you're likely to be found guilty. Now, here's, here's some of the verdicts that came in as not guilty. First, the, the conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos' paying patients. This, uh, this relates to assertions made to patients about how well the product would work in terms of its accuracy and reliability. And there's another verdict relating to the wire fraud against Theranos patients. In this case, an Erin Tompkins, a patient in Phoenix who testified that she received false results from the Theranos blood test indicating she was HIV positive. Verdict there, not guilty. And then there was a verdict against uh, a couple of patients who complained that they'd been given tests in, an Ariz- in Arizona that falsely indicated prostate cancer. Verdict, not guilty. Then there was a question of wire fraud related to a payment of a million dollars for marketing and advertising for the launch of Theranos services at Walgreens. That was also not guilty. So there you have it. Lie to your patients, give them bad results, tell them all sorts of things that aren't true about the testing, and you can walk away from that. But if you lie to your investors, oh, you're going down. The Economist weighed in on this and noted that uh, the prosecutor's counter-arguments against Holmes' lawyers rested primarily on the presentations she made to investors. These appeared to exaggerate potential sales and trumpet non-existent endorsements from the armed forces and big pharma companies. But something that didn't seem to enter into uh, the reporting I saw in the East Bay Times was that Holmes' second line of argument was the Svengali defense. This is particularly appealing to Hollywood, but it's not clear what impact it had on the jury. Holmes claimed at the trial to have been sexually and emotionally abused and manipulated by Ramesh Sunny Balwani, her ex-partner and Theranos' former chief operating officer. As such, her lawyers posited, we, we assume with a straight face, she could not be held responsible for her actions. Anyway, no sooner had this supposed blow for justice been struck than I ran across this follow-up piece. Article by Ethan Barron in the, from the Bay Area News Group. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has filed a motion indicating her legal team is looking for problems in the jury that convicted her in an attempt to get her guilty verdicts for fraud thrown out. Apparently, Holmes's 10-lawyer team seeks to keep the original version of the juror questionnaires sealed from public view because, quote, the content of these questionnaires may be the subject of further litigation. Legal experts say the reference to legal actions around the jury questionnaire suggests that Holmes' lawyers are hoping these documents could provide information about juror dishonesty or any other issue affecting the fairness of her trial proceedings. A Bay Area legal analyst was quoted as saying, we can see that happening right now in the Maxwell case and the Peterson case. In the case of the Jeffrey Epstein, the related Ghislaine Maxwell, apparently her lawyers are taking a look at Well, you guessed it, the juror questionnaires to see whether a juror failed to reveal his own abuse when asked in the questionnaire. You know, had he never been a victim of sexual abuse? Well, maybe he was misleading about that. Let's just throw the whole case out. And it gets better. The lawyers for Scott Peterson are trying to overturn his conviction for murdering his wife and unborn son based on the claim that a juror failed to disclose during jury selection that a boyfriend had beaten her while she was pregnant and that she had sought a restraining order against said boyfriend. Sure, I think you should just throw out the murder conviction on that basis. Seems reasonable to me. If in, in this case, 
the ex-boyfriend had been Scott Peterson, I think that would have been more relevant. Anyway, this piece concludes by noting that she was found guilty of four charges of defrauding investors out of a total of $144 million. Her sentencing hearing is scheduled for September 26th. As we speak into the microphone, that puts it nine months into the future. Why do you need nine months to decide how to sentence this criminal? This, this may give, give them more time for she and Sonny Balwani to maybe work out their differences and get back together. And over the years, we've had some fun on this program mocking the fact that things that get invented, well, they say that necessity is the mother of invention, but these days you could argue that invention is the mother of necessity. The tech industry comes up with something, something that works pretty well, and then tells us we need this, we need it bad. The drumbeat started many years ago about how drones were going to, to revolutionize our lives and make things so much better. We pointed out on this program that having a drone ferrying a 40-pound package of something or other 300 feet above your house is a recipe for trouble. But the drone people are fighting back. Witness this story that reported in The Verge. An autonomous drone carrying a defibrillator saved a man's life in Sweden last month. Yes, reported the man, 71-year-old man, was experiencing a cardiac arrest while he was shoveling snow. A bystander attempted CPR and told another bystander to call the Swedish emergency number for help. Within minutes, a drone carrying an automated external defibrillator landed, kick-starting the life-saving process before the ambulance even arrived. Well, yeah, there's that. Then there's the drone footage that was made public a couple days ago about how they accidentally, over in Iraq, or I guess it was Afghanistan in this case, uh, made an error based largely on the fuzzy video they were looking at from the cameras and uh, killed 10 innocent people. And I tell you what, if you fly airplanes, you don't want knuckleheads with drones anywhere near an airport. You just don't. In fact, I called my flight instructor earlier today to ask him about this whole 5G thing. And he said, this is an example of the government screwing up. We've got two agencies, the FCC and the FAA, both failing to do their job. Sometime earlier in the Trump administration, they decided it would be a good idea to sell off some of the electronic bandwidth to the tech industry for 5G. But wouldn't you know it, it turned out that part of that band was what airlines used to measure the height of their aircraft, which, which is something you want to know. And as they're fighting over this, they apparently, as of, uh, I think today, canceled 250 flights from Europe until they could resolve this issue. Now, Verizon and ATT have agreed to delay the rollout of their 5G networks by, well, two weeks to review concerns by aviation safety experts. Because even though this apparently happened like in something like 2016, and, and, and both agencies said, we're going to have trouble here, no one did anything about it until now, well, the trouble's arrived. Anyway, as it stands right now, interference from the planned use of 5G wireless poses an air safety risk, and, uh, well, it's already resulting in flight diversions. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how this resolves. Now, Joe Biden's been president now for, for one year, and he's unfortunately having to go on the offensive to point out that, um, well, the obstruction that's taking place in this country against voting rights and against Build Back Better and against, well, almost anything. Seems like, it seems like the United States Senate's goal is to prevent any legislation from passing, period. Well, correction, not any and all. If someone's going to spend a lot of dough on something, 
that the congressmen and senators can you know, see is going to be an advantage in their district or state, well, everyone seems to read that that's a good idea. Got a headline here from December 28th, 2021, noting that Joe Biden had signed a $769 billion defense spending bill. The article noted that it had passed early this month with bipartisan support. Apparently, Democrats really applauded provisions in the bill that overhauled how the military justice system handles sexual assault and other related crimes, while Republicans, meanwhile, touted success in blocking an effort to add women to the draft. Apparently, this defense bill also bars goods produced by forced Uyghur labor in China, and it's setting out money for the new Global War on Terror Memorial, which would be the latest addition to our nation's National Mall. And no, I'm not making that up. I wish I was, but I'm not. A global war on terror memorial. I also queried a Ukrainian-American friend of mine about what he thought was going to happen over there between Vladimir Putin and the Ukrainians. And his handicap a couple weeks ago was 60% chance of war. I was intrigued to note that over the last couple weeks, the Biden administration has come forward to say, There's going to be a false flag operation over there in Ukraine, which the Russian government is going to use to justify sending in the troops. When you talk about things like false flag operations, uh, that usually tends to raise the specter of, well, is that just just a conspiracy theory? To which I'd say, yeah, maybe in some cases, but it is a matter of historical record that when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, as I recall the incident, uh, the Nazis seized a radio station that was just across the German border by bringing in condemned criminals dressed in Polish army uniforms, which got executed in the procedure. And it was announced then that the Poles had then crossed the border to try and seize a German radio station to foment a revolution. This, I think it's fair to say, was was a false flag operation. The Poles did not, in fact, invade Germany. And I think it's probably fair to say that The Ukrainians are not about to attack Russians in Ukrainian territory, although apparently agents uh, in urban warfare and such things are now in Ukraine ready to go in case the order comes down to start the proceedings. Let's hope that those Russian agents um, do not get the call. Taking a look at a piece on developments in Ukraine in, in The Economist, I was really quite stunned by the map was presented of NATO. Now, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was formed in 1948 to supposedly halt Russian hegemony around the world, fostered by Joseph Stalin and the apparatus set up to spread communism. Under the rules of NATO, an attack on one member was an attack on all the members. The the Soviets then responded by putting together their own similar pact, the Warsaw Pact, it was called, and therein lay your balance of power for many decades. Well, looking, looking at this current map, it starts out with the original NATO members from 1949 to 1989, then showed the additions made since then. And here are some of those additions. The former Soviet Socialist Republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are now members of NATO. Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, all of which were part of the Warsaw Pact, are now NATO members. Independent communist states that were not part of the Warsaw Pact, but were, you know, Eastern-oriented, I guess you say, being communist, included Slovenia, Croatia, and Albania, all now members of NATO. 
Apparently, as NATO was picking up memberships in what used to be the Warsaw Pact, the Russians were assured, we won't go after Ukraine. But it turns out Ukraine wants to join NATO, and I think members of NATO would like to have Ukraine on board, and this is leaving the Russians feeling very bent out of shape about the whole idea, which I have to say is understandable. The Russians have always considered themselves to be surrounded by enemies, and if you're looking around for at least neutral nations and you're Russia, you can count on Finland, Belarus, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and some of the Asian republics. You can also count on Moldova, Bosnia, Serbia, and Kosovo as being at least neutral. Anyway, in the opinion of Radio Parallax, it would be reasonable to tell Vladimir Putin, okay, we're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. Now stay the hell out. Anyway, in the three minutes we have left before a break, which we need to take, I do want to cite one really, truly oddball item. It was a reference made to the German-Jewish-American financier Jacob Schiff, who was quite a power in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in America, and made reference to the Russo-Japanese War. We offer this brief refresher on that. Japan, in the late 19th century, decided to modernize its nation and, and to do so using the powerful Western nations as a model. It was, it was quite successful in doing this. But when it looked as though it was going to go to war with Russia, nobody gave the Asians much of a chance. No, no Asian nation had ever taken on a European one and defeated it up to that point. But surprise, surprise, the Russians sent their fleet over to Japan and the Japanese promptly sank it. What does Jacob Schiff have to do with this? Well, unbeknownst to me, but according to this website I was looking at, Schiff financed the Japanese army during that war to the tune of half of their funds. And I'm not sure how important that was in the grand scheme of things to the war's outcome. It was pretty much a naval engagement, but nevertheless, there you have it. The website asks, why did Schiff help out the Japanese? Well, it turned out he really, really hated Russia and its anti-Semitic policies which prompted the website to say, sometimes what goes around comes around, right, Russia? You need to take a short break, so let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett.